Welcome to Sin 315. We're here to encourage and equip Christians to engage in the adventure of sharing Jesus with those that God puts into their life. And we're so glad you're here. Good morning, good morning, everybody. I want to tell you, I am releasing the ban on the word excited. We can say that word today. <laughs> One of the funnest parts about us doing this, Sarah, is I get to have conversations with people that I really love, I really respect, and I get to share them with other people. And that is most certainly the case today with our guest. This is somebody that people might know because he's a pretty famous dude, but they won't know him like they'll know him after this show. Definitely. Yeah, we are very excited since you lifted the ban on the word to have with us today, um, Mike Slater, who is a radio host in political talk show, and he's an old friend of Kevin. Welcome to the show. We're so glad you're here, man. Awesome to talk to you guys. Kevin, I, I pick up your call maybe half the time, but when you say you want me to be on your podcast, I'm there. I'll pick up every time for that. Okay, well then I'll use that. Mike, first of all, I want to just start off. Can you remember how we met? No, I, I just remember like I had this crazy idea. I wanted to do an Ironman and I don't know how you and I ever met the first time. It was probably on the, what's the Fiesta Island doing laps and you and I met and I have no idea. I was hoping you knew the genesis of it all. Well, I probably coached you. I probably coached you to Ironman Zurich. I wouldn't know. No, I, no, in all seriousness, I could not have done it without your guidance and assistance. There's no <laughs> doubt about sure, it. I genuinely- believe that. Uh, I don't know how it happened, but I'm grateful it did. Well, I'll tell you, I know that I was personally responsible for your uh, outlandish success at Ironman Zurich because you and I swam the cove, which is embarrassing because I probably had to have fins on just to stay within a half mile of you because you swam at Yale, right? And it was your yeah. Yale swim buddies that shamed you and provoked you into having to do an Ironman, as I recall. And there you and I swam and you're a great swimmer and I'm not even a swimmer. And we came back and we got on our bikes, man, and we went flying on our bikes and you went, Oh, dude, I left my wetsuit on the hood of my car. I just bought it. You know, and it was one of these exotic wetsuits and everything. And so we just turn around and we start hauling back to it. I remember asking you, you went to Yale and you left your wetsuit? <laughs> what do they teach you oh. at that, man? You don't remember that, Oh, huh? Oh, it's funny. That's a, it's a famous story. There we go. Please, that's the least of my uh, you went to Yale stories. <laughs> that, <laughs> there's plenty of those to come. So, you know, just tell folks, because we did not even get to an inch deep on who you are and what you're doing. Why don't you explain a little bit about what you're doing right now and how you got there? Professionally, uh, so I host this radio show in San Diego from noon to three on AM 760. Uh, two years ago, I started this TV show on this uh, online network called The First. Doing that from two years, all from the garage, like a dream come true, like what a commute, <laughs> right? The 10 seconds from the kitchen to the garage. It's been in San Diego for like 10 years or so, and my wife and I, we met in Tennessee. So I went from college to Jackson, Tennessee, little old town between Memphis and Nashville. And my wife was in college there at the time. I met her there and imported her out to San Diego with me. We've been married for six or seven years now. We now have three little kiddos. Jack's four and a half and then Grace is three and Johnny's 16 months and they're amazing. You wrote a book for the kids, right? Yeah. Imagine Jack and the History Kids. Yeah. Uh, and the sequel is Imagine Grace and the Old Testament Kids. Oh man. Okay. That's the next one. And then I got to write a third for John. I don't know what that one's going to be. Well, he's six. 16 months. You got to get some time. Testament, That's like, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, to New Testament, that would that could work. You've spoken at our men's conferences and that was really a joy. We haven't, you know, we haven't had one yeah, because of all the COVID and all that stuff. And but, you mean the men's conferences for Foothills? Yeah, for Foothills yeah, at a church. church. And yeah. you're just like family when you come. I mean, it's like, hey, Man, Mike's it's, back. 
it's one of my highlights. I've done it a couple of times. You guys have been wonderful enough to invite me and it's truly a highlight of the year. I'm not just saying I love coming to Foothills. You guys have something really, really special. I agree. I feel that way too. One of the several places that we intersect is how we communicate with people or at least how we try. I mean, sometimes we probably go, oh, you're an idiot. I hate you, but hopefully not very often. And so when I picked up your book, How to Change Someone's Mind, another book that you wrote, it really resonated with me. I give it out to people, especially with people who have real challenges in it. And especially today with all of the issues that are going on and people don't understand each other and they're using different languages you know, there's English, but it doesn't mean the same thing to both people and everything. And I've listened to your show and I see how you communicate with people that think very differently than you do about things. And our show is Sent 315. You know, we talk about it a lot. We sanctify Christ in, in our hearts as the Lord and we're always ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us that we always attempt to do it with gentleness and respect. And that's what your book seems to be about. What was the genesis for you writing this book? Why did you think think there was a, a need for it and how that develop? I appreciate that. And, and as I was writing it, I, I, it's not about how to change someone's mind to become a Christian, but that was what I was thinking about in the background as I was writing it. Uh, but it can be used in any context. I'd say I was probably in talk radio for maybe six years at that point and trying to figure out my voice and what I was doing and why I was doing it. And when you first start something out, you're quite an imitator. And I was imitating and acting what talk radio, what I thought talk radio was. And that is you know, a lot of yelling, a lot of anger, <laughs> a lot of hate, a lot of get off my phone, a lot of you're an idiot, How, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's what talk radio was and in many places. It still is. And after a while of that, I was just like, oh, this is not fulfilling. This is not real. This is not encouraging. This is not lovely. These are these are not any of the, the things that the Bible says you should be. So I changed <laughs> and I tried to do different. And after maybe a year or so of it, I started to form together and I thought, let's put these together and hopefully it can be helpful. Right on. We often talk to people and what we're trying to do is help people more intentionally share their faith and do it naturally, do it how God made them, not try to imitate anybody else. But people are in different contexts. They're in different industries. We talked to a couple of young guys that uh, have another podcast and, they're, and one of them's in the tech world. And so, okay, you're a millennial. How do you share your faith in the tech world? And he talked about leaving clues. I mean, you can get canceled. Things can happen and you can lose your voice in, in industries. In your book, you talk about being the token conservative at Yale. It might be really rare. Is it rare for Christians to be in media? In the conservative talk industry, maybe not as much, but that was kind of an act in the beginning as well. I'll tell you this. I've never told the story before. Uh, uh, I was in Jackson, Tennessee, my first job, and that's the buckle of the Bible Belt, right? You are you are just smack dab in it. And I was not a Christian at the time. Someone called in, and there was a baby crying in the background of their phone call. And I said, "Oh, you know who's in the background, whatever." And they said, "Oh, that's our baby." It was some crazy name, like Enoch or something. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, like what a funny name! Like where's that from?" And I'll never forget him. He goes, "The Bible." <laughs> and I said, "Oh." Oh, yeah. Uh, duh. Like, of course, totally, obviously. And I was like, oh, I don't know anything about the Bible. So when I first started it, it was to fit in to the culture uh. of the South. Like, I need to know my stuff to at least like pretend to know <laughs> what's happening. And then, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And then I obviously became a Christian, truly. So that was the beginning of it. Now it's just game on. I, I hope I can speak a little more fluently about Christian biblical principles and scriptures or whatever. And 
and they just flow in conversation. Be bold and do it. And it's easier in my field though, in some ways, because I'm talking to myself. It feels like I'm talking to myself. I'm just in my garage on this microphone and there's no one here. I think it's a lot more difficult if you're talking to a person. I think it's a lot more difficult to be bold in front of a group of people. But for me, it's been easy because you're just behind this microphone. But you've been really open about your faith and very active. I mean, you've got some some things that are really important with you, like saving babies and stuff like that. You're, I mean, you're, you're out there on the front lines. I'm sure you probably do you take some heat? Do you take some shots? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So once I got better at it behind the mic, secretly behind the microphone, then you just become more bold about it. And then you're like, well, what else would I do? It's the only thing that matters. Like I, I've given so many speeches, political speeches at different campaign rallies or whatever. And you're like, okay, that was fun. But when you give a speech at a pro-life center, now we're talking. That was actually the first speech I ever gave was at a pro-life center fundraiser. And it was the first time in my life I didn't get nervous. And I said, oh, this is there's something here. Like, this is the Holy Spirit at work. Like, there's something happening here. So I did another one and I didn't get nervous. And I was like, oh, I have to do these. Like, this is my, this is what I have to do. So yeah, I I guess the the more practice you get, the more bold you become. And then, you know, what's, do we even know persecution in America? Really? We will. But like, who am I to say that I'm any, you know, persecuted, like any of the great martyrs of history, right? So am I going to, am I going to be timid in sharing my faith in America? No. On the other end of the spectrum, then being bold and being a guy who thinks logically and can debate well and all of that, how does that turn into the book, change someone's mind? Because some people that are very bold are caustic, you know, there's animosity and everything. How do you put that together where you come across in such a way that you're not beating somebody up? Yeah, that's such a good point. So it's you can be bold and humble. There's a couple of principles in the book that I think we can talk about here that are very important. By the way, it's a short read. It's like an hour. Like I tried to make it like a pamphlet. So it's not like a whole thing. Like it's a quick read. You can read it now. The most important principle, I'm just going to say it now so we don't forget it. And then maybe we can come back around to it because you got to kind of build to it. But the most important thing is to have humility, but so much humility. Are you ready, Kevin? Yeah. So much humility that you need to be willing to have your mind changed. I'm not saying you want your mind changed or you're going to change your mind, but you need to have so much humility going into this into the conversation that you are willing to have your mind changed. Why? Because that other person will notice that, let their guard down, and now you can have a conversation. That is a great point. Yeah, that was the point of what I wanted to bring in because I circle, I read the book yesterday in an hour. It's very easy to understand, but you have like, whoa, points every two seconds. (laughs) The thing that I wanted to ask about in the context of, you know, you talked about how you wrote it within the back of your mind, you know, sharing your faith and this whole thing. And I circled and triple starred that point that you just brought up, that you can only change someone's mind if you're willing to change yours. That probably to like most Christians is kind of scary because it's like, wait, we know Jesus, we know God is real. What do you mean I have to be willing to change my mind? Could you kind of unpack that a little more in the context of sharing your faith? That's an amazing question. One of my favorite scriptures is, I believe, but help me in my own belief. So I think it's okay to, when you're in the context, when you're conversing with an atheist or when you're conversing with a Muslim or you're conversing with someone who holds the whatever idols they hold in the modern world, to like hold open your faith. And be like, here it is. As opposed, and I think the other image is like ramming it in their face. That's never going to work. And even 
telling someone what I believe, I would argue isn't going to work because that person doesn't really care. But if you hold it up and you say, hey, here it is. And with boldness, here's what I think. And hold it like this. The gospel is not fragile. Like it's not depending on your testimony at that moment. Like the Bible, the gospel will live on. So you can hold it like this and have people question it and, and have it with humility and boldness at the same time. And that lets that other person's guard down of, okay, I'm not threatened in this moment. Yeah. And the gospel's not threatened and I'm not threatened. My faith isn't threatened. No one's threatened. No one's, a, no one's like alertness is on high because what happens when people are on alert? They grab it and you're grabbing your faith and they're grabbing their faith and nothing's happening. So just be willing to hold your faith up and not be scared. It's not going anywhere. Hold it up. Let them ask questions. And then you'll walk away even stronger. Now to go back to the Yale point, I loved going to Yale. I was the only conservative there really. And it was wonderful because either I changed my mind on certain things or I strengthened my opinion. And how great is it if you can go into a conversation with someone, hold your faith and then have them question it. And then you go back like the Bereans and you check it out and you get even stronger in your faith. You learn something. You're like, you know what? I can't answer that as well as I thought I could. If you always keep it close to you, you're never even going to get that question. You're never even going to know your blind spot. But if you hold it up, someone asks you a question, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to look it up. And then you can get your conviction even stronger. And that's a benefit as well. That's a lot. Is that that's, kind of makes sense? Oh, it's really, really let, good. Let me, can I speak to the narcissism? This is a big point and no one really likes to hear this. <laughs> no one cares what you think. No one cares. You think they care because you care what you think. They don't care what you think. So if you tell them what you think, they don't care. And we can't understand that, right? Because what do you mean they don't care? Of course they care. I'm, I'm brilliant and I, I, I care. No one thinks about you as much as you think about yourself. Uh, you know that's true because you're not really thinking of anyone. You're thinking of you and they're thinking of them. They're not thinking of you. They're thinking of them. And I know that's true because you're not thinking of them. You're thinking of you. So if you're thinking of you, then they're thinking of them. And, right, and it's a very similar thing. Like you think everyone cares what you think, but no one cares. So one of the <laughs> goals of the book or one of the principles of the book is you need to take the lowest seat at the table and ask them all the questions. Empty their opinion box. So they have a ton of opinions on things. And you need to ask them and get those opinions out. Get them all out. And with a genuine curiosity, if they notice that you're doing this with ulterior motive, then it's like game, like all games off it. So you got to be genuinely curious. And we are. like We're genuine curious people. So, hey, like what, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Where, where did this come from? What do you think about that? Well, I got a question about that. So they're genuine and let them. And then when you think their opinion box is empty, it's not. There's more. They got more things to say. And they'll be <laughs> happy to share it with you because they think their opinion is the most important thing in the world. So they share, they share. And then finally, when their opinion box is empty, that is when they will say, what do you think? Now we're talking. Now you have the invitation. And now it's like, huh, super glad you asked. Come with that too soon. Their opinion box is full. Mm. They don't have any room for any more opinions. They don't want any more opinions. They have their opinions. They don't need more. They don't want it. They don't care about yours. But if they can empty out theirs, then they're ready to hear yours more. Does that make sense? It sure does. Uh, expand on this part. Uh, this, one, this one's really interesting to me. You've got some bullet points uh, towards the end of the book. And you said, have I clearly identified the where of their mm -hmm. opinion? What, what do you mean uh, by that? Yeah, so this is the most important thing. Uh, one of the most important things. So most people, can vaguely describe what they think. Some people are very good at describing what they think and some people are like, oh, I kind of think this, you know, and they don't really know what they think. People focus on the what. I want to know the where. So where did you get that opinion? Or where did that thought come from? That's the question to ask. Where did this come from in your life? And then they'll give you one or two answers. 
they'll either come out with this big dramatic answer. Oh, when I was 12, this happened. My mother died and I came to this realization about life or something, right? Something now. Okay, great. Let's go back to that moment and talk about that. Or they'll say, you know what? I don't even know. And they realize, oh, I don't even know why I think that or where that comes. And now they're more open to hear the truth as well because they kind of have this self-realization of, oh, I I guess this isn't a very strong conviction, (laughs) right? So I I draw this diagram in the book where someone's like going along and then there's a fork in the road and you're over here on this one side and they had the fork is their where, their moment. That's page 36 if you're following along at home. So the pivot is the, the fork is their moment. So you're way over here and then they fork over in this other direction and they're over here now. You can't get them to go from where they are to where you are unless you first backtrack to their where and then bring them along to your track. There's no shortcut. They can't jump from their point to your point unless they first backtrack. That's an old like psychology principle is just getting to the root cause of things. That's all that is. And I just transposed it into uh, opinions. Playing off of that, you know, going with the roots because some of those roots are very emotional and yes. they're very deep. You use the example of like someone encountering just hypocrites as Christians and not encountering loving or caring Christians so they form this opinion that all Christians are terrible. You talked about, too, a quote on page 29, you must constantly gauge the emotional temperature of the conversation. Mm. And I think that really plays into the roots thing and, and seeing that. I'd love for you to just expand on yeah. that. Let me just drive, drive on this mm-hmm. one last point and then I'll go to that, which you first mentioned, uh, about like the hypocritical Christian or mm-hmm. I haven't here like, I'm a firm believer in single-payer healthcare because a friend of mine or I was in a car accident and I didn't have health insurance and I'm broke because of it. And that's why I believe it. And once you expose, expose is like a dramatic word, but once they articulate that and you're aware of that, oh, okay, let's talk about that. Right now we're not talking about Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and <laughs> Republicans and Democrats. Now we're talking about you and we're talking about mm. your story. Tell me more about what happened. What was, first of all, is everyone okay in this car accident? Like, how are you? Like, do you have any injuries still? I've, oh, it's so terrible. Oh, you were, you, you, how much did this cost? Oh, it's crazy that it costs that much. That is terrible. Great. So now we've like communicated. Now we're taught. Now we're on the same team, right? And then it's, okay, how can we really solve this problem of why healthcare is so expensive? They feel heard, right? You're, we're on the same team now. We've gotten to the root of it. Now we can start to travel in a different direction. But if you're talking about Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump with like a subtext of healthcare, forget it. It's never going to happen. So that's that. Okay. So drive back to temperature. I wrote this book four years ago. This was pre-Trump. <laughs> this was pre like out of control temperature. This was in the midst of like social media was still kind of a thing, right? If someone is getting emotional, it's over. Like hot. Like if they're getting angry or frustrated or you don't understand, it's not happening. I just wanted to give people permission that it's okay to play the long game. Let it sit. You don't have to change their mind right then and there at that moment. And I, I, I want to get back to like the gospel too, right? Because like, I, I kind of went on healthcare, but like you don't need to turn a Muslim into a Christian now. Build relationships. It takes time. They're going to get hot. Let it go. They'll go home. They'll think about it more. Talk again next week or next time you see them or whatever. And I just want to let people to be patient with sharing it because you can have, I think I talk about in here, like a fearic victory where you can crush your opponent. You can win the argument 
and walk away. And people, if anyone witnessed it, they'd be like, wow, that Christian really knows his stuff. <laughs> he, 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 wow, he really let him have it. And what happened? Nothing. If anything, that guy is even less likely to ever want to hear the gospel because now not only does he have a bunch of hypocrites in his Christian experience, but now he's got, he's got a big jerk who just yelled at him and wasn't listening to him. And now it's never happening. So patience is the corollary to making sure the temperature doesn't get too hot. Off of that, some people are better at naturally seeing the emotions that are going on in the conversation. You could have more trouble noticing that. What are some just like quick practical tips for seeing what that gauge is and where it's at yeah. in a conversation? What an awesome question, sir. So let's go big picture. I think this is not a rule, but this is a strong guideline. I think these transformative conversations need to happen one-on-one. Can it happen in a group church? church, church? The problem with a group setting is it turns very tribal. You're trying to change my mind. You're trying to change my mind about something. And in our culture today, if I admit, if I give you guys like a victory, then I lose. And if I lose, I'm weak and I'm full of shame because I lost the battle. So someone in a group, I think is way less likely. And I think it goes back to like, literally like cavemen, tribal, primal impulses. You just don't want to be the loser. You don't want to be the weak one in the group. I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. So it's way harder for someone to be humble and admit, you know what, maybe I'm wrong about that. I'll give you an example of this. This is funny. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, who's on Colbert show, because it was recent. Uh, Seinfeld goes, yeah, no, I think uh, you can still listen to Bill Cosby and think he's funny. I think you could still watch a show and listen to a stand up and think Bill Cosby's funny, even though all the terrible things he did. And Colbert's like, you know, I don't think so. And whatever. And then they went to break and they came back and Seinfeld goes, you know what? I think you're right, Steve. I don't think you can listen to him. Yeah, I think you're right. And and like people applaud. And Seinfeld goes, I think that was the first time ever in television history when someone admitted they were wrong and changed their mind. <laughs> and Seinfeld can do that because he just doesn't care, right? Like right? He's like, and he's right. Like, have you ever, ever on cable news or anything like that ever heard anyone say, you know what? I'm wrong. I think you're right. Have, forget even like a public. Have you ever heard that in a group? I've never even heard it in a group of people. Someone's just not going to do it. It's too dangerous. And like, not to get off topic, but even public speaking, this is why people don't like public speaking because people equate public speaking with getting attacked by lions. The primal <laughs> part of us is like, it's very fight or flight. You get fight or flight. That's why blood doesn't go to your stomach anymore because it goes to your heart and your limbs to run because you're scared. So you think you're going to run. That's why you get butterflies in your stomach. The lights become super bright to you because you're, you're in fight or flight mode because you think you're going to get eaten by a lion. But what that lion is, it's your reputation. You don't want to fail because people will think less of you. People won't like you anymore. So we're, we'll get all freaked out. And I think that's true with changing your mind. No one wants to change their mind in a group. So body language, it's more than even temperature too hot. It's more than even tone. It's also body language. So it's one-on-one. I'm imagining it's got to be so casual. Like I'm thinking like you're sitting in low comfy chairs, like leather chairs, leaning back, talking, very casual conversation, a lot of looking up. When someone looks up, it's like they're looking into their brain. That's what that is. Thinking like deep thoughts. It's very like a lot of pausing, a lot of introspection. This is a casual, non-threatening conversation. Once someone starts sitting up, leaning forward, voice getting a little sterner, no, 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 no. That's not what I said. It's gone. And it, it can be subtle. Like, no, no, no. Or I'm trying to think like, I'm trying to think like how subtle another example would be. It'd be like, I can't believe that someone would think that. You're shut down. Everyone's shut down here. And it's just not going to happen. And the, the quicker you can abandon mission is better for everyone. It's so hard to even bring it back around. Because you know what the worst thing is? Hey, 
relax. Come on. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I don't have a ton of marriage advice, but in the history of marriage, honey relax has never once resulted in honey relaxing ever. It's never worked. And it's not going to work in a political or religious conversation either. Yeah. I, I've got a couple questions for you, Mike. So you have tons of interesting conversations all the time and people pay you to do it. What about people who aren't, it's not so natural for them? Do you have any advice, any help for initiating important conversations? Yeah, great question. So I'm actually not a confrontational person. A couple weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, with me, two other guys at the neighborhood pool, and he was talking about some job problems that he's going through. And he goes, yeah, but you know, I've been doing a lot of meditating and I think the universe has good things for me. I thought, okay, this guy next to me, my wife and I have been inviting him to church. He's come a couple times. We want them to know Jesus. And this guy, my buddy was like, yeah, the universe. Every part of me was just let it go. Like, who cares? Let the guy think there's a universe that's looking out for him. But I was like, no, I have a responsibility here as a Christian to kind of ask what he means. So I could have said, well, you're an idiot. The universe doesn't know about you or care about you. And by the way, who made the universe? And that wouldn't go well, especially when he's going through a tough time, right? And to him, the universe is helping him. So I think it's just simple. It's, what do you mean? So non-confrontational, but I still felt butterflies in my stomach before I asked it. I was still nervous. I hesitated. The conversation could have moved on, right? I, I could have almost missed the chance. That's how nervous I was to even ask such a simple question as, what do you mean? And he's like, oh yeah, I did this and this and this. I was like, well, tell me more about this universe. How do you know this universe that you're tapping into is centered towards good or neutral or chaos or bad? And he's like, um, you know, I never really thought about that. And then the kid, Jack, told me to run in the pool and I had to go and do some stuff. So we didn't get to finish the conversation. That was like the beginning of the question mode. Tell me, like, let's pull this out. I'm not like, wow, you're an idiot, you know, typical Libra or whatever. It's it's like, hey, tell me more about your meditation. What does your meditation entail exactly? I'm just curious. And eventually he would have gotten to the point of, what do you do? When you're going through a tough time, what do you do? Man, let me tell you what I do. And now, now we're talking. Yeah, you were taking him to that where, you know, and a lot of people use that language, but maybe they don't really feel that strongly about it or know where it came from. I've had conversations similar to that where someone's talking about, oh, I had this, you know, this voice in my head that told me to do this. And if I realized if I hadn't have done that, I was going to get mugged or, or something like that. And I've been able to use, which is another point that you talk about in the book, which is finding common ground, where I listen to them, I ask them questions, and then I bring in, oh, that's really interesting. That's that's how I see God. That's how I hear God. And they go, oh, that's really interesting. Could you just talk real quickly about that, finding common ground? And then I think in the same chapter, you talk about ending on that high note. Yeah, that's a great example. Like, be like, yeah, ever since I became a Christian, it's been hard for me, but the Holy Spirit, like if I can really listen to the Holy Spirit, then he's always guided me in a wonderful direction. And now they're like, wait, what's the Holy Spirit? Like, what are you talking about? I never want to end a phone call on the radio until we find some common ground. And just like a simple, political example is, do we all want kids to know how to read? Yes. Okay. So someone's going to call in and be like, oh, public schools are amazing. And I'm going to call in after I just said, you should never send your kids to a public school. So we have a we have a pretty different opinion here. So we go back and forth and I've, I did not employ any of the tactics on this book at all because it's a radio show and he comes in hot and I get defensive and I have to win because my reputation as a radio show host who knows everything is on the line and I have to talk faster and louder and no more facts and put him on mute and then let him talk when I'm looking up facts in the background so that people think I knew this stuff off the top of my head. 
I'm not doing anything I say, but at the end, it's like, okay, hold on, man. Hold on. on. Do you have kids? Yes. What's the most, one of the most important things to their success? Education. Great. We agree with that. Awesome. Can we find one thing we agree on this topic? Yeah, we need, I don't know, whatever. Right. I'd be like, oh, perfect. All right. Let's go there. Call back in anytime. And then I hang up on him and I talk bad about him (laughs) off the air or on the air with him off the phone. So, but if you can find a nice little common ground with someone, then man, what a setup for the next time you guys meet. So that guy who I met with, we, we ended up cooking burgers and we talked a little bit more and then I had to go again. It wasn't a good opportunity, but it ended on such a positive note of next time I see him, it'll probably come up and we can continue that conversation because again, it doesn't have to happen at one time. So common ground. And then the other one was ending on the high note. Oh, and on the high note. Yeah. So we call it the George Costanza rule. So there's a Seinfeld episode. There was an episode of George Costanza where he told a really funny joke. He's in an office setting and he told a super funny joke and everyone cracked up. And then like a minute later, he told a, just a bomber of a joke. And then the meeting ended right then. And everyone was like, Oh, Costanza, like what an idiot. What dope he's not funny and then he told jerry and jerry's comedian so comedian he's like oh you got to end on a high note so then the rest of the episode every time he tells a funny joke he's like all right everybody good night good night everybody and he leaves the room <laughs> and ends on the high note everyone's like wow that costanza he's really funny so if you're having this conversation and you notice it's casual the temperature never went up body language is cool and calm kids aren't about to drown and pulling you away because you're at a pool and the person you're talking to says wow that i've never thought of that before man that's great hey i gotta run but let me know if you have any other questions about this stuff or what I, I just don't think it happens maybe it does but i don't think it happens where someone falls on their knees and says oh you are so brilliant and genius and i give up everything I've ever believed in my life. Thank you so much for this last three minute conversation. Like, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Don't even worry about it. Just let the high note happen and they'll think and God will move and you were a part of it. Yeah. You're playing your role and it, there is a long game and uh, you're not the beginning and the end of the whole thing. Mike, the fact that I'm going to stop uh, starting conversations uh, with you're an idiot. I've got that. This has changed me. Thank you for that. <laughs> I didn't think I had to make it a rule, Kevin, but uh, for you, I'll, I'll give you a special copy. The Kevin rule. I've got a really, really good friend and this is the impact that I've had on him uh, on trail running. He transformed through all of these years of conversations. He says, yeah, I don't call people idiots anymore. I say, you're the kind of person that I used to call an idiot. <laughs> I went, wow, that's progress. Good job. 1% better. Yeah, on, at, at best. Where can people connect with you, Mike? Locals is a new online platform, mikeslater.locals.com. And it's a way better community for a lot of reasons. It's like a social networking thing, but you're not bombarded with algorithms and outrage and anger. And it's just a much quieter place. And I like it a lot. So that, that's where we've been putting stuff and we're going to invest more time in that as time goes on. But that's where everything is right now. MikeSlater.Locals.com. We'll put that in the show notes. Yep. If I can end, I want to end on like the last chapter that we're small enough now. Mm-hmm. Marcus Aurelius, he says, whenever you're about to find fault with someone, ask yourself the following question. What fault of mine most clearly resembles the one I'm about to criticize? How about that hurt for humility? So let's just go back to the, um, this guy believes in the universe, helping him or whatever. Okay, I'm going to criticize him for being someone who I used to call an idiot. If I can in the back of my brain say, you know what? I have idols too. I think money will save me. I'm not too different than him. Then we can start to chat. The last Mm. story, I'll just paraphrase it. Actually, this is how I 
became a Christian. I'll share, I'll share this. And then when people do ask me, why are you a Christian? How'd you become a Christian? Like once I've emptied their opinion box and it's a great conversation and everything went, uh, I talk about science and I talk about the universe and I talk about the, the fine tuned universe theory. Like it's impossible that life exists. Just like go through like the science of it, right? You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And some people come through your heart first. Some people, I, th- I came through my head first to become a Christian. So I start talking about all that. And I, that's why I ended on uh, just the idea of the universe and it's massive and enormous and I write all about that and I tell the story of how Teddy Roosevelt his outside of DC estate was in Long Island and whenever he had guests over he would always at the end of the dinner they'd go outside and they'd look up at the galaxy because he was a naturalist right he was all about nature and all this so he'd go up and they'd look up at the stars and they'd look at the Milky Way and he would talk about the Milky Way and how many light years away it is and every sun and every star is bigger than our sun (laughs) you know like our life-giving sun like is like nothing compared to the rest and just blow their minds with the size of the universe and therefore the size of God. After they were all blown away, mesmerized, entranced, he would say, okay, now I think we're all small enough. Let's go to bed. And I just love, like, you play a huge role, but have the humility to know you don't know everything. And I think we're all small enough. I don't know. What is it? It's like permission to fail. It's permission. What is it? It's to not know everything (laughs) in some ways. Yeah. You don't have to know everything. Self-importance. Are we the center of the universe? You know, this is a big universe and God is that big. And on the other side of it, he cares about us. You know, he has thoughts about us that we can't even count and he loves us so much. And he is that immense. That's what blows me away. There you go. That's your testimony. People are thirsting for what you just said, Kevin, and how you just said it. And literally, this is one of the reasons I love you so much, and I think about you often, is your presence and calmness and patience. And I think people, I want that so badly. And I think uh, when you speak the way you just did, it's so captivating. People want it so bad. They want that love of God you so clearly feel. So I think if one goes into a conversation, understanding how small and how loved they are at the same time, how about that for a dichotomy? I think it's infectious. That's my high note. Good night, everybody. Good night. Hey, go. hey, Stanza, get go. him back on the show again. <laughs> Mike, thanks so much. I-, I love you and you do a lot of good. And one of the highest compliments that I can give somebody is you do good work. Thank you. We're going to spread your book around so people can get the rest of it because we didn't read all the book to everybody who is listening. And having better conversations makes the world better. <laughs>